This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The countries of the world have been hammering out an agreement to fight climate change at that big conference in Poland. Paul Bodner of Boulder was there, and he joined us right before. Now he's back with an update. Bodner, we should say, helped the Obama administration negotiate the original accord, which President Trump announced he wants to scrap. Bodner is now with the Rocky Mountain Institute, a clean energy think tank. And Paul, welcome home and welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's great to be back. Talk to the person who's worried about climate change. What came out of this summit that might offer a glimmer of hope? Well, I think there's a lot of hope coming out of this summit. 200 countries agreed by consensus on a detailed rulebook running dozens of pages for exactly how they're going to use the Paris Agreement to ratchet down their greenhouse gas emissions over the course of this coming century. And that is a major achievement, considering that uh, getting all the countries of the world, including the United States, to agree by consensus to anything is quite difficult. Including the United States. So that's interesting because, of course, President Trump previously announced that the U.S. plans to withdraw from the Paris Accord. It's a process that takes four years. But uh, how, how exactly was the U.S. at the table? And did the U.S. agree to anything concrete? The U.S. is a party to the Paris Agreement, as you note, until late 2020 at the earliest. And the posture they took, wisely in my view, is that it's in our national interest to be at the negotiating table because the president has not ruled out staying in the Paris Agreement under the right conditions. He's just been rather hazy about what those conditions are. Well, let's get to some of the details. So the nations of the world agreed on how they were going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. What are some of the things they agreed to? Well, fundamentally, the Paris Agreement allows countries quite a lot of leeway to define exactly how far and how fast they want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But it holds them to a high standard of transparency in communicating to each other what they're doing, how it's going, and to be candid about the shortfalls. Hmm. Why is that so important? Kind of inherent in that is almost a distrust, like... Are we sure Botswana's living up to what they're promising? Well, the tools that are available in international law to get countries to do things are quite limited. Let's face it. We're not going to be bombing other countries for failing to meet their emissions targets anytime soon. So the Paris Agreement, like a lot of international treaties, is built on softer enforcement tools. And the reason that countries agreed to the Paris Agreement in the first place, finally, after 25 years of failing to do so, is because most countries in the world have decided that it's in their national interest to shift to clean energy, not just because of climate change, but because they're concerned about air pollution, they're concerned about the health effects on children, they're concerned about energy security. But the adjustment is difficult for a lot of countries. And so they need the confidence that their economic competitors are moving along at more or less the same pace they are in that transformation. So for the United States, it was very important that China be held to the same standards as we are in terms of being held to account for succeeding or failing to meet our targets. I don't know what to picture exactly <laughs> when I'm picturing this this climate summit is there like a gift shop is there like a trade hall where people who are going 
this is the best new way to capture carbon. Is there an aspect of, of the show that's like that? I wonder if there's anything that caught your attention. You should picture a 30-ring circus. <laughs> You've got more than 10,000 people wandering around a giant conference center, which resembles an airport where all the flights are delayed. And there are pavilions that nations have, that companies have. And indeed, the Polish pavilion, which, of course, was put on by the host of this year's conference, did feature something of a gift shop. And rather unusually, the things that were featured in that gift shop were coal-related. <laughs> the cop was held in a coal mining region of Poland, and showcased in the Polish pavilion was jewelry made of coal, soap made of coal, and other sort of coal-related trinkets. But I suppose if it's in jewelry, it's not being burned. You're right. I guess you could view it as a kind of carbon sequestration, but you'd need a lot of jewelry <laughs> to keep that coal <laughs> out of power plants. Well, on, on a similar note, did the U.S. rally behind coal at this summit? It has happened previously, and when we talked to you as part of a preview, you thought that there might be a kind of reprise of the fossil fuel parade. Yeah, so we saw two faces of the United States at this conference. One was the quiet, diligent work of professional U.S. diplomats from the State Department in negotiating rooms, working shoulder to shoulder with other countries. The other face we saw was led by the White House, which showed up at this climate event and held an official meeting to showcase the role of coal and other forms of so-called clean fossil fuels in helping the world deal with climate change. I have to say that particular event did not go over so well. <laughs> there was a fair amount of booing. There was laughter, jeering, I, I think. Uh, so my successor in the Trump administration, who leads energy and climate issues in the White House, I did not envy him having to do this, although, of course, it was their choice to put this forward. Let's talk about companies and things other than countries, so cities, states, because represented, I believe, at this summit were corporate interests and local governments for whom climate change is a priority. What's one thing that stood out in that arena? What stood out for me was the virtual consensus among companies from all over the world, big and small energy sector, food sector, consumer goods sector. Yeah, name that, some names. For example, the vice president of Salesforce coming forward to make very forward-leaning uh, announcements about what Salesforce wants to do, not just in its own operations, but to help its customers realize the transition to a clean energy economy. You know, the way that the CEO of Unilever, which is one of the world's largest food conglomerates yeah. once put it was, listen, I'm the guy who makes your breakfast cereal. And I'm telling you that if climate change happens, your breakfast cereal is going to be more expensive. The shares that your pension fund holds in my company are going to be less valuable. So you had better care about climate change. And I'm telling you that as the CEO of a food conglomerate. And I think it's very useful for ordinary citizens to hear that. 
from the brand names that they interact with day to day. And of course, it's very useful for ministers and government leaders to hear that because it gives them the permission. It helps build their political will to do more. Paul, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Paul Bodner of Boulder helped the Obama administration negotiate the global climate deal known as the Paris Accord. He just got back from a summit to hammer out the finer points, despite U.S. intentions to withdraw. Bodner is with the Rocky Mountain Institute, a clean energy think tank. Just because it's public land doesn't mean you can actually get to it. As Colorado's outdoors get busier, there's more awareness of the lands that all of us own but can't necessarily access. Jay Bouchard is covering this. He's digital assistant editor at 5280 Magazine. Hi, Jay. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing well. Nice to see you. A study from OnX. This is a mapping company in Montana. And the nonprofit Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership finds more than 250,000 acres of public land in Colorado can't be reached. That's right. I wonder if that surprised you, first off. You know, it did, and mainly because a report of this kind between Onyx and the Theodore Roosevelt you know, Conservation Partnership hadn't been done. You know, no one had really looked into this issue, and in, in public lands over the last years, had been, it's been such a topical issue, especially with the Trump administration, with a lot of chaos in the Department of Interior, Um, we've been talking a lot about public lands, but no one has really looked into the public lands we can't get to. Well, I also think that Coloradans, Westerners in general, sense that public lands are getting more crowded. They are. And the natural question is, well, where else could we go? Of course. And and I think particularly for hunters and and fishermen and women um, who might need to seek out spaces where there aren't a ton of people, where they need to to recreate away from the, the very crowded trails. I just want to point out that the largest landlocked parcel you report in Colorado is some 5,000 acres. It sits about 50 miles north of Rifle. But according to this study, there are approximately 54,000 inaccessible acres within 100 miles of Denver. So these are in rural areas and near urban centers. Uh, Who would you say uh, is most affected by this lack of access. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be easy to, to write it off as like a, a western slope issue, right? Because the, the biggest parcels of land, there's a couple there in the 5,000 acre range over there. But it's really something that will affect all Coloradans. But particularly, like I mentioned, the hunters and, and the anglers. Um, because as our, tra- our trails get very, very crowded, yeah. there are certain groups of people who are going to go deeper into the wilderness, um, places where there aren't established trails. Those are often people who are, you know, hunting for elk or deer or trying to find, you know, stretches of river where they can find solitude. Um, and the public lands, I mean, that's why they exist. They're ours. Um, it's meant to be that way. But it can be very, very tough um, if you can't get access to it. Very frustrating. Yeah, and let's explore why access is difficult in these places. Is it, is it anyone's fault? No, and that's, it's, it's not anyone's fault. Um, essentially, there's a lot of private property holdings that completely surround public land. Um, and it would be very easy to point the figure at private property owners and say it's their fault. But you really have to consider the way the Western United States evolved um, with yeah, this, homesteaders, this with railroads. This back to the Homestead Act, right, of yeah. 1862. This is kind of baked into our history. Explain this for us. Yeah. So, you know, during and, and after the Civil War, you know, any adult citizen in the United States who had never borne arms against the country was essentially allowed to go west and claim 160 acres of property. And I'm generalizing here, but that's really how westward expansion took off um, in the Civil War years. Um, 
But simultaneously, the transcontinental railroads are being built. Um, and the federal government struck a deal with some of the railroad companies that they could have every other parcel of land. And it created this checkerboard ownership along the railroads uh-huh. simultaneously with homesteaders who were buying a property. So you had these massive swaths of federally owned land that were totally enclosed by private property. Um, and of course, it's not as though anyone was thinking about people hunting and fishing and biking and hiking in 2018 during the 1860s, right? And so this creates, uh, as you describe it, a checkerboard, a landlocked situation Absolutely. for public lands. Now, this is not an insurmountable obstacle because there are any number of ways to grant access if there is this this landlocking situation. What are a few ways this has been negotiated in the past? Yeah, I mean, and that, that's a great point. It's not as though we just have these landlocked parcels of land we can't get beyond. Um, and a lot of conservation organizations, like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, for instance, work to acquire um, property um, from private property owners, very, very small buys in order to open up large swaths of land. Oh, like little little corridors. Exactly. And, and there was one in southern Colorado in the San Luis Valley. Um, it's been going on this year. Um, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation worked with the Bureau of Land Management and Bass Pro Shops. They bought 28 acres which once the deal is finalized, will open up 8,500 acres of federal land. Oh, my goodness. So very, very small buy with a huge return um, for the public. Okay, so that's an outright purchase. It but is. there are other ways to do that so that landowners retain ownership. Yes, exactly. I mean, and that, and that can be an easement, you know, a small crossing across the property that the landowner agrees to. Or, you know, in some cases, they're very, very large ranches. And, you know, conservation groups, um, local city land managers can can work with some of those folks and say, hey, would you mind letting people pass through here. Um, and of course, you know, every, every landowner is different. Some are um, happy to grant access and easements and work with the state and local governments. Others, not so much. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Jay Bouchard of 5280 Magazine, who wrote recently in that magazine an article titled, Nearly 300,000 Acres of Public Land Are Inaccessible in Colorado. How does that compare to other Western states? So it's interesting. I mean, at the federal level, some other Western states actually have it worse, right? Uh, Montana, for instance, has over a million federally um, uh, owned acres that can't be accessible. However, we do have unique barriers at the state level um, in, in the form of state trust land, which is land that essentially was deeded to the state um, when it became a state. Um, and it's for revenue generation, resource extraction, that kind of thing. Um, in many other Western states, the majority of that state trust land is open to the public for recreation. Okay. In Colorado, um, it's a little less than 20% is open. So out of 3 million acres of state trust land, you know, according to reports, um, only about 500,000 acres um, are open for recreation. And is that because of the same landlocked private ownership situation or just the nature of those particular lands? It's more the nature of those particular lands. Oh. And, and I've, I've reached out to the state um, on this matter, and I have not heard back yet exactly why they've structured the land that way. Um, and I, I am curious to see if there will be momentum um, to kind of follow what other Western states have done in order to say, okay, you can come and, and hike and, and bike and hunt and fish on these lands as long as you're respectful and follow these guidelines. Okay, so just to be very clear, those lands are in addition to yes. some 300,000 acres of public land off limits because of private land surrounding that, it. That's right. Wow. So that, that, okay. that 300,000 figure refers to the federal land that we can't access. Um, and then there's you know about 2.5 million acres of, of state, oh, trust, land state that, trust land that we currently aren't able to access. What are ways that uh, the, the sort of pot can be sweetened so that private landowners say, 
yeah, I'm I'm open to this. I mean, do they have to say yes year round? Yeah, I mean, it it really depends on on the conservation group they're working with and kind of the nature of the deal. Um, in, in some I mean, cases, I can understand people yeah. who don't want trammeling hikers, sure. you know, all the time. Sure, but I, I do think many many landowners in Colorado understand the benefits of of recreation um, and and of public land too. And I think you know some people are more receptive. Um, and often, if they sell a small parcel of their land, there can be financial benefits there too. Um, for the landowner, say, okay, I'm going to sell maybe just 10 or 12 acres, um, and it'll be a good return, and also everyone's happy. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for being with us, Jay. Of course. Jay Bouchard, digital assistant editor at 5280 Magazine. Again, his article is titled, Nearly 300,000 Acres of Public Land Are Inaccessible in Colorado. Turns out that's just part of the picture. It's not unusual for someone to donate their body to science, but when a Denver woman named Susan Potter approached the University of Colorado Medical School in 2000, it was clear she was making more than an offer. She was trying to fulfill a dream. That was my last will and testament, to leave something behind that would have an impact on the whole human race. That's Susan Potter from an interview in 2002. She died 13 years later. If her dream is fully realized, she'll live on for generations of medical students. Before I continue, I want to note that we'll talk in some detail about what can happen to a donated body. Susan Potter has been cut into 27,000 slices. Images of each will be digitized and her body virtually reconstructed. Potter and the scientist leading the project are the focus of a recent article in National Geographic. That scientist is Vic Spitzer, director of the Center for Human Simulation at CU. Vic, welcome to the program. Good morning. I want to know more about Susan Potter herself. You collaborated with her for the last 15 years or so of her life. She'd read about your work imaging cadavers. Tell me about that first meeting. The first meeting was after two or three weeks of her persistence. Uh, She actually called uh, one of my colleagues on a phone that had never rung before. We used it for outgoing calls. We have no idea where she got the number. But that was her persistence. Uh, About two weeks later, we met for the first time. She rolled into my office, showed me the newspaper article and said, I want this. I want this. And explain what this is. And I didn't know what she meant. I (laughs) presumed that she wanted to donate her body. In fact, she'd already donated her body uh, to the State Anatomical Board of Colorado, but that's not what she meant. I want to be sliced up like this man that the article was about uh, and presented to medical students to learn about anatomy uh, from her body. That's what she wanted. Why? She wanted to give. She gave a lot of things to Colorado, to Children's Hospital, the University Hospital. Uh, she was always in a giving mode. Um, she wanted to do things that had impact. And uh, this is, I think, her last thing she wanted to do. <laughs> I think that at that point, her body was already pretty frail. What what did she have to offer that made this a, a worthwhile project? Like, I, I have to think that the, the quality of a body or the age of a body or something like that, that plays into this decision. She had nothing. 
I, I uh, thought about it for quite a while and decided what, what can we see in you? We can see pathology, but that's not our goal. We want to teach normal anatomy. So I thought about it and something I'd seen uh, about a sculptor uh, 10 years earlier, uh, a sculptor who was dead talking to the public. And I thought about that and said, well, Susan, if you're interested in us capturing your life yeah. so that we can present your life as well as your body to medical students, then they can learn, I think, more about your body because they know something about your life, uh, your, your, your whole life, uh, including the time between now and your death. Uh, this sounds pretty fluid for me right now. It was hard to talk to her about this, yeah. but she made it easy. <laughs> uh, and she agreed. And so agreed to what? That we would photograph uh, and video interviews with her, with her students, with her doctors, with her previous doctors, and capture her feelings about her health care and her body. In a way, I'm struggling to put this into words, but she became a 360-degree cadaver. So it was a sense not just of her body, but of all of the life that had led to the condition of that body uh, and a way of preserving that body digitally so that you could know virtually every aspect of it. And she wanted to, certainly she was okay with teaching people anatomy, but she wanted to inspire compassion in healthcare workers. So I thought that uh, having her talk to them uh, about the compassion of a healthcare giver would be effective. Uh, it's, it's pretty effective. I mean, it's pretty overwhelming to have someone that's dead talking to you about their own body. Uh, uh, whether they learn anything different, but her goal was not to teach them more. It was to have more compassionate healthcare workers. But of course, she also met with students before her demise. So there was the the, the real life interaction. She and, had four medical students. Well, she, she we, we had an, an interview between her and about 12 medical students uh, from a class of 160. And four of them wanted to, it was their idea, to follow her. And they followed her through their four years of medical school. And two of them stayed in the area and kept following her, uh, one of them uh, until her death. Uh, but two of them uh, she interacted with for the next 12 years. Uh, but they followed her. What if following her mean? Oh, they'd meet with her every month or so. There were physicians at the university that kind of thought that was keeping her alive. She she lived to interact with them. You think that prolonged her life? I really do. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, my, we were caught by an article in National Geographic just recently. It's called Susan Potter Will Live Forever. Susan Potter is a woman who approached the University of Colorado Medical School and said, I would not only like to donate my body to science, but I would like you to be able to digitize every aspect of me, which required um, quite a lot of slicing of her cadaver so that virtually every aspect could be documented. Uh, Potter developed a relationship with the school and the students before her demise were talking about what could become of the science as a result. What, what, a, what a fraught interaction it must be, though, with someone um, in life who you know will donate their body to science. And, and the sort of elephant in the room, I have to think, at every gathering is 
what will happen once she's not there. Do you know what I mean? And she was in those rooms. Yeah. Uh, she would come to, we have a, a memorial uh, donor recognition at every year. And she came to a, a few of those uh, and interacted with people. She came to the graduation of her four medical students that followed her. So she was around and people met her and she was always going to let them know that she was going to end up in my freezer. That was her, that was where she would end in building 500 in my freezer. Let's talk more about the science, how it will be used, how you're digitizing. Can you explain like what it looks like to a medical student or what it will look like? The visible human is the ability to look at the anatomy in, in the way you want to see it in cross-section, in three dimensions, or the way you want to take the body apart. Uh, she will be similar, but the difference is a student can uh, maybe ask a smart speaker or ask her to talk to them about what they're seeing. So if you're looking at her vertebra, vertebrae in her, in her neck, okay. she can talk to you about what it felt like after that surgery. Uh, we didn't really get her to talk about the car accident that she was in, but the disability after the surgery is what she was most upset by. So this required, when she was alive, going into great, great depth of her physical history. It is. And we really like to keep everything about what we do <clears throat> the real thing. It's photographs. We don't doctor the photographs. And we want to present her, uh, her voice exactly the way she said it. However, I am not beyond trying to get her to say things to students that she would like to have said to them, put words in her mouth, but capture it in her voice. In other words, now synthesizing her to say things that, uh, about the anatomy that the students are seeing. So someday I, I really hope she will talk to them a lot more than what she said. That is to say you have all of these words of hers built. You could construct your own phrases I, from her? I think we can, just as Siri talks to us today. That raises some interesting ethical questions because you're giving voice to someone who didn't give you those literal words in that literal order. Oh, that's true, but uh, neither did Siri. <laughs> neither? Okay. <laughs> and I suppose she gave you a sort of carte blanche authority to do this kind of stuff? I just feel, yes, she she wanted, she agreed to let us do some very, very intimate things like photographing her physical examination. Oh. Uh, I've never seen it, uh, but it was photographed and it was videotaped. Um, someone might utilize that and I might look at it someday also to see if it would be helpful for a medical student to see that when they're looking at the inside of her body. One more ethical question. What if she had changed her mind? I, there's, there's more of an ethical question than that even. What if her two daughters changed their mind? Well, her attitude was they had nothing to say about it, but in fact, they do. Uh, what if they said? If they said no, I, I told her, I, I said, it's over. I'm not going to do this against your family's will. Uh, I'm not going to do it against your will either. I would, I would have stopped in a moment. National Geographic worried about that. Uh, she never wavered. She always wanted to do this. And she thought it didn't matter what her daughters wanted. She still wanted to do this. But in fact, once you die, it does matter. <laughs> uh, your, your family could easily block your desires unless you really put it into a will. But wills don't get read until it's too late for us to utilize a body anyway. Huh. 
I, th- I think this speaks to the persistence that you talked about earlier. Uh, this is not the first time you've done this kind of procedure. It dates back, actually, to something called the Visible Human Project in the 1990s. What got you interested in this? Uh, radiology. Uh, I came from a medical physics background in radiology and anatomy, the department of anatomy came to our radiology department and they hooked up with me finally. Uh, They wanted to do things in teaching anatomy, much like what was happening in radiology and CT scanning. That was before MRI. I I love the idea. Uh, I also didn't have any particular interest in any part of the body, which I think made this all feasible. I cared about anything or everything. So cutting up the entire body made sense to me, not just the part that some people get focused on the brain or the the shoulder or the knee. I understand that this actually has roots even earlier in your life. Tell me about this shoe store. Oh, uh, (laughs) looking at my own feet in cruise bags in downtown Pueblo, uh, I was fascinated by seeing the bones in my feet uh, using an an x-ray machine, which was uh, exposing my gonads uh, as a young child, but nobody knew that. Uh, And uh, but just being able to see inside my body, I thought was fascinating. My brother became the radiologist. I went into chemistry, uh, but I loved peering inside my body, and I'd love to have one of those X-ray machines today. I just shielded a little better. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what happens to Susan Potter's uh, actual remains now that they have been sliced and scanned. She's cremated, uh, just as all of uh, the cadavers that we use uh, for dissection and with our students use. Uh, all of the remains are cremated. Instead of large pieces that have been taken apart, it's all dust. Uh, and so we're cremating dust. So there will probably be a lot less than normal cremains because the pieces of her body are so small to begin with. They'll burn uh, more completely. Do you miss her? Yes, I do. Um, all of her quirks, uh, I do. But I, I'm, I'm happy about everything. Uh, she's getting what she wanted. Uh, I'm also uh, consoled with the fact that she wanted to die for quite a while. Uh, that went away. But there were many times in the 13 years that she really would have been more comfortable dying than living. Thank you for sharing this story with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Vic Spitzer directs the Center for Human Simulation at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. His work with Susan Potter, who donated her body to science, is chronicled in the latest edition of National Geographic. That's titled, Susan Potter Will Live Forever. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The state's largest school district has chosen a new superintendent. Susana Cordova will lead Denver Public Schools starting next month. The board hired her unanimously last night. I have the confidence that Susana will lead our district in a new direction. Yes, building on the successes of the past, but having the courage to abandon what does not work and to try to find some new solutions to the persistent problems that we face, the challenges that we face in this district. She's ready, she's prepared, and she's the most dedicated educator I know. 
My vote of yes is a vote to your deep knowledge of the city and the schools that you bring to DPS. I look to you to lead as a DPS in Denver native would, seeking to strengthen all of our schools so that all students in every neighborhood have an opportunity to succeed and thrive by design, not by chance, as you have mentioned. As a Latina and someone who has come up through DPS, you're an example to our students of how to demonstrate how someone can lead in her own city. You heard school board members Happy Haynes there and Jennifer Bacon. Susana Cordova has been Tom Bosberg's deputy superintendent. She's a graduate of Abraham Lincoln High and taught in the district. I spoke with Cordova earlier this month when she had been named the sole finalist. Susana, welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. Let's say you get carte blanche authority to change whatever you wanted. That isn't necessarily the case. There's a school board and That's all. Right. But what, right. what would, would be the changes you'd make? One of the most important things I think I would like to do coming into the job right away is to really make it clear to our teachers how important, how valuable they are, and how critical it's going to be for us to put more compensation into their base pay. Something that um, we've been working on with our teachers right now, and we're in the middle of negotiations. And I think it's really important that we send that message right off the bat. More money into base pay. Of course, a measure on the statewide ballot in the midterms to raise money for schools failed. Uh, That would have obviously meant a significant chunk of change for DPS. Where do you find the money to do that? Yeah, and so that's connected to something else that I think um, I'm really well poised to do quickly, which is to look for efficiencies and slim down our central office. I've worked in our central office for a long time, uh, and I have a good sense of where's the highest value and where can we afford to have a greater focus um, by eliminating some areas or slimming them down. One idea that we've been talking about is there's a lot of evidence that high school students should start later. In the day. In the day, yeah. That the brain science tells us that, you know, high school students' body clocks are wired to stay up late at night. I've got a high school student myself in DPS, um, and it's really hard to get her to go to sleep at night. It's equally hard to get her up in the morning. Or more Um, hard. uh, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) If we did something like move to a later start time for all of our high schools and do some standardization of our bell times, we actually could save significant funding probably in the millions. Um, Really? Where would that savings come from? It would come through standardizing bell times, having more efficiency in how we run our transportation routes, while at the same time allowing us to think about a later start time for our high school students and earlier start time for our elementary school students. So it's ideas like that that I'd really like to explore in terms of how we could get more funding. Just briefly to the front office, to headquarters at DPS, are you saying that there are simply too many bodies at district offices? Would you do some trimming of actual employees? Yeah, and so I think we have great people who work across all of our teams. At the same time, I think that we can have greater focus on the most important work that we're doing. You know, our board has laid out a strategic plan that is heavily focused on a small set of priorities and really looking at our central office to ensure that we're tightly aligned to those priorities, I think would give us the opportunity to think about how we can slim down central office um, to really focus on those areas exclusively from the center. Okay, just briefly on teacher compensation, the teachers union says if an agreement on pro-comp, this is the method by which DPS teachers are compensated. If a deal isn't reached by January 18th, They'll take a strike vote. There is the potential for that looming. 
What do you see as your relationship with the union? So, you know, another thing I think that I bring as a real asset is I grew up inside the district, you know, outside of my family and my marriage. All of my closest relationships are with people who are practicing teachers in DPS. In fact, my speed dial, half the people are teachers. Um, and so I, I deeply appreciate, value, and understand the complexity of what it is to be a teacher in our district. Um, I've worked in collaboration with our teachers and our union for a long time. And, you know, my commitment to our teachers would be that I would come to the table with an open disposition about honest dialogue and back and forth negotiations so that we can get to a point where we all feel satisfied that we've got a, an agreement that people can feel good about. You mentioned your marriage. I just want to note that your husband is a banker who specializes in public finance. His online bio says he's one of the leading investment bankers in the charter school movement. His firm, D.A. Davidson, does a lot of work in Colorado. If your household income is somewhat connected to charter schools, does it make you more likely to support them? Yeah. Interesting question. Uh, You know, I've spent my entire career in the Denver Public Schools working to support district schools that are managed by the Denver Public Schools. And so in my household, we have half of the marriage that's been completely focused on district-managed public schools and half of the marriage that's worked on creating options for families and children across the country in charter schools. And we have families in Denver that have in the same family kids in one grade level in a charter school and a different grade level in a district school and vice versa. Um, And I think that's one of the things people really appreciate about Denver. Do you ever have to recuse yourself? My husband has not done any business with the Denver Public Schools since I have been the deputy superintendent. In fact, I think the last time there was any work from his firm directly with the Denver Public Schools and the school board was in 2005. At that time, you know, I had a job in the central office overseeing literacy curriculum. And his company has made the commitment to do no work in Denver with Denver Public Schools or any Denver charters. How much input have you sought from parents as part of this process? People want to be included in decisions that have impact on their schools and their communities. And they don't feel that and now? They, they don't always What's feel like that's, that's the case. I think I personally heard lots of feedback, and I think our board heard lots of feedback, that people have very significant concerns about gaps in achievement. They don't feel like we've done enough to address that. I think we've heard really clearly that people want to be able to have two-way dialogue, that at times it has felt like community engagement in the Denver Public Schools has been one direction from the district to the community. I pride myself on being a listener, and that's something that I would bring to the table as a superintendent uh, with the community. What is the biggest difference between you and Tom Bosberg? Tom's a great friend of mine. We are not at all alike. Uh, Part of the reason I think we worked well together is because we are very different. I'm much more of a listener. I'm much more collaborative. Uh, You know, I'm a woman of color. I grew up in a very low-income family. Um, Neither one of my parents went to college. My dad didn't graduate from high school. And that has completely colored my life experience, what has motivated me and drives me to do the work that I do. And, you know, that's a very different experience than he had. Are you saying that you are more collaborative and a better listener than he is? Oh, I I think I am. Yes, definitely. Okay. Thank you for being with us. Great. Thank you. Susana Cordova speaking with us two weeks ago about her priorities ahead of last night's unanimous vote to make her superintendent of Denver Public Schools. Up next, the British rock icons who made their North American debut in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Yesterday, we told you about the Northern Colorado family nicknamed the Greeley Griswolds for their impressive holiday display, 180,000 lights. This landed them on the ABC show The Great Light Fight. So how did they do in last night's episode? Well, unfortunately, no trophy for the Medhursts, but their music-synced light show did wow the judges. I'm off the charts impressed. They have a fantastic light show, and it's synchronized amazingly well, and it looks flawless. You can see for yourself at CPR.org. Fifty years ago this month, an unknown British band made their North American debut in Denver. A music critic for the Rocky Mountain News wrote this about their performance. Blues-oriented, although not a blues band, hyped electric, the full routine of mainstream rock done powerfully, gutsily, unifiedly, inventively, and swingingly. The band was Led Zeppelin. They were the opener at Denver's Auditorium Arena, December 26th, 1968. The rest is music history, which we'll explore now with longtime music journalist G. Brown. He runs a music history site called Colorado Music Experience. Hi again, G. How are you, Ryan? Doing well. How does Led Zeppelin end up playing in Denver the day after Christmas? It was a big deal at the time. Uh, the booking agent called Barry Fay, the local rock promoter, and asked if he could put this band on the bill. Fay had already sold out the show that was headlined by Vanilla Fudge and Spirit, two icons of the time. Uh, so Fay declined. The guy said, please, you know, these guys are going to be huge. $500. Fay acquiesced. And the rest is history. That is Led, Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin was paid $500 for this appearance? And not even printed on the tickets because they were <laughs> added as an afterthought, <laughs> totally under the radar. If you read Rolling Stone uh, when it was an underground mag at the time just being launched, you might have known that uh, this was the new Yardbirds, if you will. Uh, the Yardbirds, a great British rock band that grew guitar players. Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck were in their ranks at one period. Jimmy Page was the third guitarist mm. and he was just trying to to reset uh, the new Yardbirds. Keith Moon, the legend has it, the great drummer of the Who said it would go over like a lead balloon, and it was then a <laughs> uh, short extrapolation to become Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, I have to say, one of the best band names in history, as far as I'm concerned. It always conjures up such a specific image in my head. I don't mean to date you here, G, but you were 14 when this show <laughs> well, happened. Well, you just did. I, uh, yeah, it's not my intention, though. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> Did you get to go to this show? Oh, no. Uh, it, w- it was the day after Christmas, December 26th, yeah. and that was uh, not going to fly at the household. I got to see him then shortly afterwards when I had a friend who was old enough to have a driver's license. But you were cool enough at 14 to have heard of Led Zeppelin and wanted to go? I had read about this new configuration, yeah. yes. Wow. And, uh, uh, yeah, what an amazing time. We talk about it being the day after Christmas. That was a huge thing for Robert Plant, the lead singer. He was 20 at the time. Page had been through the ranks and mm-hmm. played arenas before, but uh, Robert was 20 years old. And as he told me, being away from home at Christmas for the British is the end of the world. Uh, you know, so for him to be uh, traveling on on this side of the earth was uh, uh, an astounding feat for him. And so he remembered that first show in Denver when you spoke with him? Uh, very much. His biggest memory was that he couldn't believe that the promoter could charge for the backstage catering, <laughs> bill it back to the band. <laughs> <laughs> Barry Faye was in it. Every, very shrewd, I suppose. Uh, when did you finally see them live for the first time? Because it wasn't that first concert. It was uh, about two years afterwards. Huh. Uh, they played the Denver Coliseum uh, after that a couple of times. When Zeppelin played that first show, they didn't even have an album out yet. Um, It had been recorded earlier that year, I think, but wasn't released until January of 69. The set list on that first American tour, though, included some of their soon-to-be hits, like Dazed and Confused. Been dazed and confused for so long, it's not true. Wanted a woman, never bargained for you. Lots of people talking, few of them know. Soul of a woman was created below. So the Rocky Mountain News critic called the music gutsy, unified, inventive. How did Denver audiences receive Led Zeppelin? By all accounts, Led Zeppelin made quite the impression. Uh, This was a sea change, 1969. This was the end of that year, but earlier the Stones had launched the first big rock tour where previously it was pop bands playing their hits, filling theaters with shrieking teenagers. These were the first shows where musicianship was at the fore. People mm. got to stretch out. They had the lighting and amplification that the venues deserved. And so you got Jimmy Page taking a bow to his guitar strings and uh, doing this amazing solo. And John Bonham, the drummer, doing Moby Dick, playing with his hands as well as his sticks for well into double figures in minutes. Do I hear you saying that the musicianship became more important than the aesthetics in a way? It was the first time that people got a chance to see how musicianly these folks were, right? I mean, instead of just coming out and doing a cavalcade of hit singles, they got to stretch out and uh, created rock culture as we know it. You were a a hopeful musician yourself. (laughs) And I understand that those hopes were sort of dashed because of Led Zeppelin. What's this story? Well, to a degree, uh, playing in my junior high school band, in the ferment that produced Python deity, right? Um, all the <laughs> it was apparent that I wasn't going to play at Red Rocks anytime soon. So I, <laughs> I channeled my passion into writing about it. But when I heard Led Zeppelin's first album uh-huh. and the opening tune was Good Times, Bad Times, I was a drummer and Bonham 
does triplets on the bass drum pedal. And I sprained my ankle just listening to it, basically. <laughs> Said, um, maybe I'd better dig out that Dairy Queen application and take that <laughs> after-school job. If this person exists on drums, there's no way for me to do this. That's it. Uh-huh. Did Led Zeppelin play Colorado in those intervening years? Oh, gosh. I think they ended up playing here four times. Okay. Or more. Did you make it to every show? Uh, for the most part. You know, they didn't hit Denver on a lot of the later tours once they'd become superstars playing the stadium circuit. Never did a stadium show in Colorado. Did Barry Fay, the concert promoter's presence in Colorado, mean that there were a lot of other bands like Led Zeppelin? who got their North American exposure first in Colorado. Not really. Denver was the flyover, Ryan. Uh, Back then, it was a day in to get into Colorado and a day out. And if you're leasing your equipment, you can't eat that up. That's why bands stayed on the East Coast, uh, touring the seaboard. You could do colleges every night. Uh, And Barry's imprint uh, was that he made Denver a must-play market for bands. How he did it? We can talk about some other time, but, uh, but it was very rare for a band to start their tour in the remoteness of the Rocky Mountain region. Making this all the more exceptional. Thanks for being with us, G. Always good to see you. Happy holidays, my friend. Colorado rock historian G. Brown remembering Led Zeppelin's North American debut 50 years ago. This is part of our year-long coverage of how 1968 changed Colorado and America. This is CPR News.